This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning and welcome to this event in place of centralisation, um, where we're going to be talking for an hour and 15 minutes about the really important topic of fiscal devolution. My name is Lindsay Judge, I'm one of the research directors at the Resolution Foundation and I'm delighted to be chairing this event today, not least because for the last two years I've been running our cities work and places work here at the Foundation as part of our Economy 2030 inquiry, which is a, a, a collaboration with the London School of Economics and funded by the Nuffield Foundation. So this event sits Within, within that enterprise. Um, we've got a fantastic panel today who are going to be taking us through the issue of fiscal devolution. They're going to be educating us, they're going to be stimulating us to think about different issues. So let me introduce them. At the far um, right, I have Anthony Breach, who is Senior Economist at the Centre for Cities, who's one of the authors of a report that's published today on this topic. I then have Bart van Ark, who is the Professor of Productivity Studies at Manchester Business School and Managing Director of the Productivity Institute. Thank you for making it from, from Manchester today. On my left, I have Tony Travers, who probably needs no introduction to this audience. Um, Tony is a professor at London School of Economics and has been working on the topic of local government for many, many years. And finally, on my far left, um, last but not least, I have Heather Jameson, who is editor of the Municipal Journal and, and no doubt is going to give us a really interesting insight into what local leaders are actually saying about fiscal devolution. Um, lots of opportunities for you to engage with the event. Um, you can post your questions on Slido, so do that. I can see a lot are coming in already. Um, and for those of you who are in the room, you're also welcome to post them on Slido, but I will also try and come to you in the old-fashioned way with a microphone at some point during the event. And final thing for me is um, hashtag is devolution, so if you want to tweet, please do use that. Enough from me. Let's get cracking. Anthony, over to you. See if this clicker works. So, thank you for um, having introduced me, Lindsay, and thank you for uh, being here. I'd also like to thank the Resolution Foundation for uh, supporting this work as part of the Economy 2030 inquiry, and also my, my co-authors, uh, Stuart Bridget and Olivia, Olivia Vera, who uh, contributed to the report. But just to start, why does devolution matter? This might seem like a strange question for someone from Centre for Cities to ask, but it's really at the heart of our conversations around local government reform, around local and national economic growth, and also fiscal devolution as well. As well, it's very easy for uh, officials, think tankers, journalists to get up on stage and say, yes, we need more devolution, we need, we, we need to change the way things are done. Actually working out how to get through the weeds and through the difficult challenges of doing devolution um, requires a very strong and a very good reason uh, to do so. If I can just uh, see if the slides work. Are these slides working? Oh, is it the bottom one? So it's, yeah, there we go, it's changed. Great, I was doing it the wrong way around. So our argument is that the UK's stuck economically. We've had low, low economic growth, low wage growth, low productivity growth, we're blighted by low investment, and we've got unusually high regional inequality and unusually high centralization as well. So the argument we're making for devolution is that if it is worth doing this challenging and difficult thing, and devolution has to be about improving not just local economic growth, but also national economic growth as well. And in particular, by improving the performance of the big cities outside of London. So 
In particular, we observe that Manchester, Birmingham and London, which make up about a third of England's economy, need to do well for the entire UK to do well. And although we haven't seen progress in devolution over the past um, three, four, five, twenty years, at least within London, we haven't yet seen much evidence that devolution has been a big driver of national uh, economic growth. And we've developed a framework in this report where we think about devolution as almost having three legs that make up a stool. So there is the powers that uh, devolved governments have, there is the geography and the governance of devolved government, but there's also the funding, the taxation and the spending that uh, devolved government is responsible for. And while we have seen changes across powers, geographies and governance, we haven't yet quite seen nearly as much change on the funding side. So advancing fiscal devolution is the most important part of the devolution journey at this stage uh, in, in the game. And to sort of resolve some of the questions which are about how do, how do you deliver a big increase in devolution beyond what we've currently had, but it's still small enough to be more manageable than doing a big bang, everything everywhere all at once, we're proposing that the next phase of devolution should be a triple devolution deal to London, Manchester and Birmingham as a trio, as a troika, and that this should be a new emergent tier of the state which should take on shared responsibilities, shared duties and shared fiscal powers. So, and fiscal devolution is the priority and it's how we, how we advance this. So in terms of the principles of fiscal devolution, again, this is an area where people say, yes, fiscal devolution, that sounds great. Please give me more tax raising powers, but also don't take away any of my grant funding. Um, there, there is this kind of chicken and egg problem where we can observe that centralization is, has not really contributed to reductions in inequality across the UK. I think most people would accept that the UK is exceptionally centralized and exceptionally regionally unequal. And also centralization is responsible for the current problems we're seeing in local government finance, in that local government control, central government control of local taxation and central government reductions to grant is why local governments are so starved of resources. But there is a chicken and egg problem in that if we do fiscal devolution badly, there is a real risk that it could go wrong. We could have large increases in inequality without much impact on growth. So this, the way we're thinking about it is that there's two separate questions to any discussion about fiscal devolution uh, and local government reform. There's the amount of resource in the system, so there's the amount of funding which local governments have to fulfil their responsibilities. Plainly, that is insufficient at present and would need to be increased. But there is also a second question about what is the design of that funding system? How much, how is the resource actually getting through the system and through to local authorities? And so our framework for then thinking about, well, how can fiscal devolution thereby increase national economic growth as part of this triple deal framework is about reconnecting increases in local funding and local resource to improvements in local economic growth. It's revenue neutral for both Treasury and also for the mayors, so no particular place is disadvantaged, but also we're not seeing um, huge outlays from central government to fund uh, such a change in services. And we balance out any changes that might occur in terms of national redistribution by shifting from national redistribution to local redistribution. So affluent neighbourhoods in the triple deal cities would see less of their taxes go off to Whitehall and then come all the way back, but would redis be redistributed to less affluent communities and individuals and households within their own city. So there's two strands to how the kind of the different levers of fiscal devolution all work together. And there's basically an interplay between business rates, income tax and the grant system. And there are a second series of considerations around uh, council tax. So I'll talk about business rates, uh, the, the first interplay first and then council tax. And then maybe as well after the um, in the panel discussion, talk about those other two legs of the stool. 
So our proposal for fiscal devolution uh, is set out here on, on the chart. And you can see here that we've got in each of the bars where there's no purple bar, um, we have Greater Manchester, West Midlands and London. And that's the current funding mix for all of the boroughs and each of the mayors within each city. So the light green, the kind of you know, radioactive green on, on the bottom is uh, the grant system. The dark forest green is the business rates contribution. And the light green at the top is the council tax, which is collected by both the mayors and also by, um, by the boroughs. And our proposal is the one next to that for each individual city, which you can see includes purple, inc includes a slice of local income tax, which is retained by the mayors within each city. And our proposal is that the mayor should keep a slice of local income tax, um, with uh, Greater Manchester and West Midlands keeping a much larger share than London. Um, a single grant given to the mayors, which replaces a lot of the grants which are given to the boroughs and also the mayors rolled up into a sort of super single settlement for anyone who's in this area. Full retention of all business rates that are collected and control of the multiplier which determines business rates bills within each city. And also reforms for council tax to increase flexibility uh, for places. So you can see in this model what we've done is we've set out a £200 per head grant for each mayor. So the more people you have, an extra person moves to your city, you get an extra £200 from central government. The income tax share for Greater, Greater Manchester and for West Midlands is 20%. So of all the income tax that's collected within those two cities, 20% is then kept by um, Greater Manchester and the West Midlands. And in London, which makes much more money from business rates than either the other two cities, London gets to keep 1.5% of its income tax. And in terms of the changes to funding, this is broadly revenue neutral given um, you know, how, how aggregated the, um, uh, the data is and allowing for some increases, uh, small increases in tax rates to balance this out. But Greater Manchester will get a 16% increase to its funding. Greater Manchester always benefits uh, indirectly from these uh, structures because the nature of fiscal devolution in Manchester so far means they receive less grant funding than other places. West Midlands sees a 2% decrease in funding uh, London sees a 3% decrease in funding, and the outlay for Treasury is this cost £15 million pounds, uh, in the first year. So estimates. But, you know, th this is what we're setting out here isn't kind of a prescribed, you know, um, you know th this is exactly the only way you can do it. We accept this is going to be negotiation between the mayors and between uh, Treasury on this, and we are leaving plenty of room for the politicians to get around the table and hash out the details. So here's an alternative model we've also been able to present using this framework. And instead of a £200 grant, we're suggesting this could include a £333 grant distributed to the mayors. And less fiscal distribution, redistribution in terms of um, less local income tax retention uh, to balance it out. So 13% of income tax for Greater Manchester and West Midlands and 0.3% um, for London. And you see that this has slightly different effects on the quantum uh, in terms of the amount of funding that goes to uh, each city. But broadly, it's kind of within... Uh, an environment where the, that we aren't seeing huge winners and losers um, from this uh, from this settlement. But again, coming back to the original question, why does this matter? You know, what's the point of going through all of that hassle just to get to where we are? Well, the key thing is about growth. So the inter the report goes into this, but sort of the interplay between all of those different changes means there's now a much stronger connection between local resource or increases to local resource and improvements to the local economy. So the Local tax system in this framework is much more buoyant. The more activity that happens, the more revenue is generated as a result of this. So we've got an illustration here of kind of um, from the first funding model, which you saw a prediction of um, income, extra income tax revenues that are raised by 2038, um, conditional on progress towards the 
economic growth targets that were set out in the previous Economy 2030 reports on Manchester and Birmingham. So here you've got high growth scenario, medium growth scenario, and low growth scenario, and those meet a third, two thirds, and are entirely meeting that, those growth targets which were set uh, in that um, Economy 2030 report earlier. And you see that the, the margin of increase for Greater Manchester and for West Midlands runs into the hundreds of millions of pounds, depending on if they can increase their, lo their local economic performance by that degree. That currently doesn't happen within the system. And you can see that um, if we did have this much more fiscally devolved system, the mayors would be rewarded if they pursued economic growth, if they took on those tough political challenges about building more houses, about building more infrastructure, about you know, concentra you know, developing the city centre as a place of production. That would then flow to the mayors in terms of higher revenues, and that can then be spent on more services, on more investment, or indeed on lower taxes, whatever the mayors decide to spend it on. But crucially, because we're talking about the three biggest cities in the national economy, it's not just these cities that benefit. We're also seeing Treasury is getting hundreds of millions of pounds a year in addition um, from income tax revenues, despite fiscal devolution, because, um, because the national economy is performing better uh, in this framework. Oh, this is working. Great. So that's kind of the interplay between business rates, grants, and, um, and income tax. But there's also the other half of it is, is council tax. And council tax is key to not just the um, improving the buoyancy of the, of the tax system, but also to improving redistribution as well. So broadly, there are four problems of council tax. Everyone will know that it's set by 1991 values. But it's also, there's not enough bands. It's too compressed in terms of the distribution of house prices. We have capping by central government. So central government determines how much council tax can increase by. And it's also all anchored around band D. So it's, all, it's a very fixed um, slope of um, the tax system, which is um, together, all of those four things together, are why the council tax system is so regressive, so unpopular, and raises uh, so little money. But basically, if you just try and fix one or two of those things, you immediately enter into a huge world of pain, and it becomes very difficult to reform it. But if you revalue, or if you sort out each of those problems, um, so you revalue every year, you put at least two extra bands on the top of the system, you re remove capping, and you remove this anchoring system to allow local authorities and the mayors to set uh, proportional tax rates for each band um, of, um, of property um, after, after revaluation, then we increase incentives to grow for the local authorities and for the mayors, because if they build more houses, if land values go up, they get more revenue. But also council tax becomes much fairer as well. So here we have somewhere, uh, we have Bolton, which is kind of a less affluent local authority on the outskirts of Greater Manchester. This is the kind of place people normally think about when they say, oh, fiscal devolution is going to make Bolton or somewhere like that worse off. You know, more autonomy over taxes, less central grants. It's going to, it's going to make um, the situation less fair. But basically, what we've been able to do by increasing the flexibility that local authorities have over council tax, we're able to broaden out the tax base and turn it from a regressive tax system, as seen in light green, to a much more a broader tax system, which is fairer and progressive, such that you can see on the bottom axis here, roughly about 70% of households in Bolton would receive a tax cut of between 700 and 200 pounds purely in terms of their council tax bills. So this is part of a shift from national redistribution to local redistribution, is accepting that the local finance system has to be more uh, locally uh, flexible to enable um, that more progressive um, system. So, and crucially, unlike other proposals to fix council tax, this is scalable across the entire country. So normally council tax proposals get into a, um, can get into a pickle around London because house prices are so expensive within London. What this proposal does, by shifting towards local redistribution, 
um, it means that most households within London as well can get a tax cut. And by our calculations, about three quarters of people uh, in all of the cities, including majority of people within every borough, can expect to see a large council tax cut as a result of these changes, about £637. So in summary, our proposals which suggest would reconnect um, increases in local resource to improvements in the local economy. We'd see a shift from national redistribution down to local redistribution, and this would improve not just local economic growth, but also national economic uh, growth as well. And that's why devolution matters. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much, Anthony. Um, Bart, thoughts, reflections, and especially, I think, on this really interesting question of the relationship between fiscal devolution and growth. Right. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation. And I'm, I'm obviously proud being the representative from the north here, although my accent immediately betrays <laughs> I'm not really from the north. But uh, I'm grateful to my colleagues that actually put trust in me to represent a voice from the north. Um, I think this is a great proposal. This proposal airs realism, and who can be against realism? Uh, you know, doing something that we can possibly get done. I'm certainly not against that, given the fact that we urgently need to tackle a couple of issues when it comes to regional development. Um, we have been too reliant in the UK on firing on just one engine or one cylinder of growth, which is London and the southeast, probably. That's impacting our longer-term growth potential because we have our own issues here in this part of the world. But then the second issue is that the, the vast part of, of other regions in the UK, and especially the second-tier cities, show too low levels of income and productivity. And therefore, it makes the UK a, a nation that's much less resilient uh, in terms of economic shocks and everything than other countries. So we, we need to deal with this. And focusing on a devolution model on those three core cities on the Troika, I think, makes a lot of sense. Experimentation is good particularly if there's a path sort of outlined on how we can scale this up over time. We may come and talk a little bit about that later, about do we have that sort of longer-term vision uh, ahead of us. But I think this proposal airs a lot of the kind of that balance. So I'm very supportive of this idea, uh, and my comments should be seen as probably constructive. Now, on the issue of growth, um, and are we at the right geographical level here, um, the key question really is where does policy for growth originate, where does it get designed, and where does it get implemented? And I think the key here is this is all about multi-level governance, right? So this is about national government that sort of sets out the big strategy, that defines the guardrails, both politically and strategically and also financially. Uh, at the regional or meso level, if you want to call it like that, there is the strategy to develop that strategy in the context of the region. There we have big issues because this is where things like planning happen and transport infrastructure, everything that creates agglomeration effects and spillovers, but also negative externalities needs to be dealt at that middle level. And now we've got the local level where we basically implement and try to really come with citizen-focused solutions that fit into to, to its local context. And where we're struggling in the UK, of course, is in this meso-level, because we don't have a natural kind of good sort of meso-level of governance. We've tried a couple of things, they disappeared, and then we tried other things, and now there seems to be some consensus about mayoral combined authorities, and that might be a good path forward. So, so the question really at the moment is, is this sort of the right level to see growth happening? And here's a bit of my concern. Leaving London aside for the moment, which I make a comment about in a minute, West Midlands and Manchester, both about 3 million population. If you think across the OECD about where sort of meso-level economic strategy happens, it's sort of the 3 to 7 million range. So Greater Manchester and West Midlands are really at the lower end of a range where you effectively have meso-level kind of governance. 
So the question to me really is, are we sure that with West Midlands and Greater Manchester, as realistic as this may be, because we've got practically mayors in place and everything else, we will fully leverage that growth potential in going forward? An alternative would have been if I just take Manchester, if I think about Greater Manchester and take a sort of outside in perspective, I would say, why not should we deal with Liverpool city region and Lancashire as well? And why don't we think about that whole Northwest as a region that probably gets much closer to six, seven million uh, people? That would be a typical kind of agglomerate uh, area where you have these kind of agglomeration effects going on. So I think there's still a kind of a question, are we absolutely certain that we are at the right level here, that we're fully leveraging these agglomeration effects, that we can deal with negative externalities, that we deal with all those towns that are around these agglomerations where we have a lot of problems and that are, are fundamentally going to, be, going to be part of it. Now, I know all of that, expanding this is politically harder, therefore makes this proposal less realistic. That's where I started, I understand that. Uh, but I do think that we need to, to sort of ask ourselves before we move down this road, are we sure that we sort of um, uh, going on a, on, on, a, on, a, on a fast lane that ultimately doesn't end us to get stuck in the slow lane because we're not at doing this at the right level. Finally, one comment on, on London. I, I, I ask myself, why is London included in this? Um, it's it's much bigger region. It's about 9 million. Uh, it's at a higher end uh, of, of this range of OCD, which is it's because it's a capital. You see the same thing in Paris, for example. But it seems to me London has very different type of problems. It does have the agglomeration effects, but the, the failures that we see in growth rates have much more to do with the growth model that we have in London than with the sort of typical issues that we're seeing in West Midlands and, and Manchester. So even though it's growing sort of this proposal from 6 million to 15 million, it's nice, it's still the question, is this the right thing? If you think about the parts of the country that are big cities that are not being included, we probably think about 25 million. So, you know, if you take London aside, we have 6 million of the sort of 25 million we should potentially look at. So the question again is, is this, is this ambitious enough to get us further down the road? The final thing I would say, and then I'll stop. Uh, I have a few more things to say, but we can pick that up later. Is this chart on income revenue, which I really like, is of course very much, and the potential that these growth scenarios give us in terms of additional income yeah. revenue is deeply associated with the spend pattern that is creating that growth. So ultimately, there's a lot of endogeneity here, right? What does the growth strategy look like? How are we looking at those income resources? How are they going to be spent? And that I didn't quite see in this report. It might have been in the other two detailed reports, but I think we need to make sure that all these are based on an assumption that, this, that we fully understand how income spent yeah. and the impact on growth is going to be related. Let me stop yeah. there for a moment. Thank you very much, Bart. <laughs> Huge challenges on whether we're going big enough, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, um, you've worked on the topic for many years. Um, you've seen baby steps, shall we say, towards fiscal devolution with the Trailblazer Day. Um, Trailblazer Day was in the budget this year, the kind of culmination. So what do you think is plausible next step? I mean, the, the steps, you're, you're right, the steps taken so far are... There are steps. They're tiny, though. I mean, governments, successive governments have struggled, and this report's great at exploring this idea, struggled with this remarkable desire we have in England, though it's separately visible in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, to have the most advanced equalisation arrangements in the world, which means that if you build up your local tax base, you lose 100% of grant pound for pound. Very unusual by international standards. And having the sort of pre-George Lansbury, each council keeps its own money version, 
which is what existed before we had the techniques and indeed the social democratic desire to have equalization. And these things are intention. So the full equalization, no postcode lottery, everybody gets exactly the same everywhere version of Britain, which is very odd when you think about Britain in other ways, but it's very, very embedded, is there in the whole logic of local government finance. And what this report is trying to do bravely and wisely, in my view, is to a one leap and we're free moving on from that. And it is you know, important, and everybody in the room knows this, I'm sure, just to remember how centralised England within the United Kingdom is. I mean, there are smaller countries and city-states that are pretty centralised. New Zealand is fairly centralised. The Netherlands is fairly centralised. But um, this is a country of 55 million, 56 million people, where, in effect, 100% of taxes are set by central government. 5% notionally council tax, but that's set by the government because it's capped. So it's 100%. Is that going to end well? No. Has it? No. So uh, this is definitely a, 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 a report that is, I mean, and I say I'm using the brave word brave not in the Sir Humphrey sense, but in the genuinely we need to one leap and we're free kind of thinking process to move on. So that's the first thing I'd say. Got to remember just how centralised and how few incentives are. By the way, uh, Julian Ware is in the audience from TFL. Sorry to name check you, Julian. We actually have an example nearby of how you can use the increase in local taxation to provide enormous flows of revenue to fund major local investment, and that is the Battersea Nine Elms Northern Line extension. There, the government allowed a so-called tax increment finance deal to capture a significant amount of the growth in the tax base in order to borrow money against it to invest, invest in the Northern Line extension, which allowed the whole development to go ahead. Now, it's a bespoke scheme. It had to be argued line by line with the Treasury. But it's a physical example of how this kind of arrangement could work. And by the way, let's put it in a square bracket with an exclamation mark. The government's now proposing to do the same at Euston about eight times over. So if you want to see how the government sees this potentially working, look to Euston, where they're going to try and raise billions of pounds from property development and capture the tax yield, and indeed the section 106 and sill yield, in order to pay for miles of tunnels, a railway station, riches beyond the dreams of avarice at Euston. So the government itself thinks like this when it needs to, but not systemically when it comes to the local government funding arrangement. So just to come back onto uh, the uh, path of rationality. So these are radical and clear proposals. They find a way of reforming council tax, which has every, and we were discussing this before we started, every government since 1991, when it started, or 1993 actually, but 1991 prices for the valuations, has sought to find a way of revaluing council tax. Every time it's not done, another time is missed. And actually, this what this proposal here does is effectively can to constrain the redistribution from revaluation within each local authority. It's a very radical change. And that's a, that would make it much easier to do it than having a national redistribution between every authority and every other authority right across the country. So that's interesting. I think giving the mayors more control over business rates, sort of quasi-beginnings of a local income tax, perfectly good idea. It begins to have a political impact in that some of the Metropolitan districts and London boroughs would, I think, think mm, about that. But in the end, what this is also pointing to is turning 
the mayoral arrangements into something more like Wales and Scotland. Worth remembering that Wales and Scotland, sorry, Wales, you know, has a lower GDP GVA than Greater Manchester or the West Midlands. So it's not as if, I mean, I take your point absolutely, Bart, about, you know, the functional area might need to be bigger. I think the challenge, which you hinted at, with doing that from an economic productivity agglomeration standpoint, which is the point you made, is that, you know, we've got the arrangements we've got, and they were hard fought. And I think, in a sense, the, the trying to get, I know you weren't proposing this, going back to the northwest would just lead all the existing city regions and combined authorities to fight that. So I'm not disagreeing with your economic argument. I'm just saying, in a sort of uh, administrative sense, we've got to an amazingly, you know, organically, and not a bad solution, actually, that it's possible to build these kind of financial proposals onto. And I suspect uh, they're the best we're going to get. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, just responding to the report, I mean, it, it, there is a proposal to go for more service devolution, but actually once you get into the idea of this kind of devolved model to Greater Manchester, uh, Greater London uh, and the West Midlands, um, then why not, I mean, you know, Wales has got far higher levels of devolution. And it, it's a big challenge to Whitehall, but actually the Barnet formula model, which by the way, doesn't allow any extra equalisation over decades. So the way we fund Wales doesn't have any equalisation arrangements between the United Kingdom and different parts of the United Kingdom over time. It just freezes Wales where its relative funding level was in the past. And in a sense, you, this report is pointing at doing that to some extent as trailblazers do within England. And I do think that model is a sensible one because in the end, central government still has loads of ways of redistributing resources from the exchequer to any part of the country it wants to, as all the little pots uh, for re, um, leveling up have proven. So, so I think I massively commend uh, the uh, Centre for Cities and the Resolution Foundation for thinking radically. A lot to be said for thinking radically. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tony. There are lots of questions coming in on equalisation and issues adjacent to that, so we'll pick them up in a bit later. Heather, what are you hearing from local leaders? Um, how much is their appetite for fiscal devolution? So I think there's a massive frustration, which Tony will be well aware of. And incidentally, um, going last on a panel is never good, but when there's two professors and um, a researcher who's just produced an excellent report, it's always worse. Um, so, so I think... I mean, the levels of centralisation we've got to now are just ridiculous. We've got, um, you know, we've got government ministers now dictating to a council that you can't, they can't do a four-day week as part of a trial to see if they can attract more people into the sector at a time when the sector is crying out for people. Um, I think what I'm, what I'd probably say is I was watching the King's speech yesterday, um, and I thought. It was incredible, you know, this is a government that looks like they're just biding their time until the election um, and just hoping for the, for me, there was absolutely no vision, as is captured in this report, about how you might grow the economy for the UK, how you might make um, more money for the Exchequer in order to produce um, money that, that will be able to go to public services and support public services rather than this terminal spiral of decline that we seem to be in at the moment. Um, I think it was pitched as a, a, a King's speech about economic growth, uh, 
but then with the proviso towards the end that um, that money would be going go towards cutting interest rates and um, and um, cutting down debt rather than actually any investment, which is I mean at this moment in time I don't think that's what the country needs. I think. Um, in terms of uh, the finances, I think the um, the income tax was a really interesting um, option. I'm, you know, I'm old enough to remember the um, the Lyons review, and in, interestingly, we're talking to Michael Lyons at the moment about some of the things that he would choose to do moving forward if if we were doing that again. Um, but we've been through, um, so we've been through the council tax revaluation not being revalued. Council tax is fundamentally broken. Um, we've been through the uh, business rates and fair funding reviews. Neither of them have actually been taken forward. Um, politically, these things are incredibly difficult. It would require a government with a majority um, and a huge amount of confidence to be able to say, yes, we are going to take these things forward. Um, and currently we have a government who seems intent on highlighting where local government is failing uh, far more than it is about talking about the ones that the, the local authorities that are not failing. And, let, you know, I'm the first to hold my hands up. I'm chief cheerleader for local government, but it is a mixed ability bunch. It is, we're in a situation where there are some councils that are making mistakes, not least because they've been, um, they've been stripped out of uh, their resources. Um, and have a lack of capacity um, to actually uh, continue with their services. Um, what else? Uh, so I think for me, public services are currently broken um, and the regions will only work if other public services are sustainable across the board and that requires investment. Um, and I think there is a view that local government fails, but it probably doesn't fail as badly as central government does. Um, or, but that is never talked about in the same way. No, there's nobody, central government never talks about, actually, we need to intervene in one of our government departments. Um, that might be a nice, uh, a nice change. So, um, so excellent report. Um, I'd like to see somebody in central government coming up with a huge vision and um, it may be this one, it may be their own one, but actually I think something has to change uh, quite dramatically. Great, thank you Heather. Lots, lots of food for thought, loads of questions coming in. What I propose to do is um, use the next, oh, we've got a little bit more than half now, to sort of break the discussion down into sort of two chunks, essentially. So the first chunk, I want to sort of focus the panel's attention and, and, and on the questions that are looking at the kind of promise of fiscal devolution, sort of interrogating some of the, some of the issues that have already come out of the, of the presentation and the panel discussion. And then we'll turn to the practice, which actually I think most of the questions are, are, are linked to. How do, we, how do we actually make this happen and, and where are the kind of vested interests for and against but let me let me start with um, let's go to a question from Slido so it's a question from James it's up on the screen for the panel so how would more fiscal devolution help with leveling up when rich areas can raise lots of revenue and poor areas can't this is kind of the uh, question isn't it around fiscal devolution and you've already talked a little bit Tony about our kind of you know our kind of I don't think you quite use the word obsession but our kind of you know long-run commitment to kind of equalization but um, let me well maybe let me start with you Okay, I mean, this is a, it does go, this question, the great question goes right to the root of the, um, 
widely held view, and I think you know, even the Treasury would hold this view to some degree, that you can't, Britain is a uniquely unequal country. Now, there's lots of research about inter-area regional differences in GDP per head and so on, much less unequal if you look at disposable income after housing costs, of course, but just park that complication. Um, but the truth is, nobody is saying 100% tax devolution here. I mean, these figures, I haven't added them up, but I'm guessing if you add all the devolution of taxes here to the regions concerned, it would be, what, 10% of all the taxes? So the other 90% would be available to the Exchequer to do what it wanted with. So the idea that every single tax has to be 100% equalised means that you bet you're back in the world of equalisation where, and I, I, I have to make it this simple, sorry, I mean, that, not to be patronising, but where councils find that if they build one extra home and bring in one extra unit of council tax, they lose exactly that amount out of grant. That's how equalisation works. If you reduce the needs in your area, you get less grant. And that is a profound barrier to incentivization for growth. And as I say, go and look at Battersea Nine Elms and see how much growth you can get if you start to follow the logic of incentivizing growth by capturing tax uplift. Uh, so I think, so I take the point, you know, but it's not as if we're, um, this is a proposal to have 100% of taxes for each city region and then the poor sink, the government would still have massive taxes at its disposal and massive redistribution through other means of the benefit system to equalise between different places. And Wales, of course, is already, as I said earlier, in the position that this implies you couldn't move to. Bart, do you want to come in on it? Yeah, so, so to me this question on, on equality really suggest a point to me that I tried to make earlier. I think within the free cities, I think this proposal might actually help to deal with some of the equalities. And I think that comes very clearly out of the way that you're sketching out the revenue model. Between those free cities and the surrounding areas, the risk of actually increase inequality is quite vast. And there's only two ways that we can deal with this. One way is to make sure that the agglomeration effects that these cities have everything around, as the point I made earlier, are going to be fully leveraged so that these towns and cities around these three main areas are going to benefit from this. Or you cannot do this tax revenue neutral. In other words, we have to make sure there's more money going into it and we need a kind of East Germany plan to level up the rest by providing them substantially more funding. Now, the last option is a great option, but it's an option that's not very likely. And that's why I'm so concerned about can we make sure that we get these agglomeration effects that all these towns that are around these places are going to be involved. So I think, I think the proposal that you have is good for what's happening in terms of equality within but it's actually uh, really creating a risk that it will hugely increase inequality between those uh, three cities and their surrounding areas. Great. Um, I mean, another part of the promise um, from fiscal devolution is that it increases local democracy. And I think, I think you used the phrase, Bart, about kind of being driven by citizens, policy being driven and located to citizens. So let's turn to the next question, which is um, from Anonymous. People say that more fiscal devolution was increased trust in local leaders, and do the panel thinks would really be the case? Heather, you probably have more engagement with local leaders than the rest of us do. Do you have any, any sense on that? So it, um, inherently, it doesn't 
increased trust increases in accountability, doesn't yeah. it? And that's uh, that's the slight difference. So um, the accountability is there, the visual, um, the one person who is responsible for this in the same way as the Prime Minister is seen as responsible for lots of government policy. Um, is um, would be the the, the local the local mayor at a, a regional level. Um, does that mean that they're more trusted? Um, it depends on the mayor, I think, um, and that's the whole point of uh, devolution. That's the whole point of local government is that it's not one homogenous great big lump. It is um, it is a case of the individuals are often far more important. Than, uh, than people recognise, and particularly it's often more important than party, in my opinion, that the actual the responsibility of the of the individual is uh, what builds trust. Tony, I, just, I mean, just to re I agree with what Heather said, but I mean, actually, would it tr uh, slightly reword the question? Would it increase would it increase trust in politics or? liberal democracy. We know the answer to that. Poll after poll after poll shows, like the Centre for Cities itself did some polling about areas that already had devolution and it was popular. But other opinion pollsters show again and again and again that if you ask people the question, would you write these decisions made by government ministers or local councillors, councillors come out way ahead. So familiarity doesn't breed contempt. You might argue, given the crisis facing Britain and other liberal democracies, that devolution would enhance trust in democracy. And that's a bigger prize even than devolution. Great. Do you want to come in, Bart? Yeah, just very briefly. I think this does not only depend on the mayor. It actually depends on the capacity of the local system to really implement this devolution. And the great thing about this report is that it really has these three legs on it. So it's fiscal, it's governance, and it is economic policy making. And these things have to interact very well. The real risk is that you do one thing and not the other. So, for example, the risk is that you actually evolve fiscal, but then the capacity to actually have good governance and do good decision making isn't all that great in a place. And I don't want to say anything negative about the people in Manchester and Birmingham are actually great, but there are lots of places where there, and areas where this can be a problem. And then we get issues. I can give you this one example in the Netherlands where there has been a lot of fiscal devolution but a lack of good capacity building at local level. And actually, as a result, a lot of citizens lose trust in local government because they have the money, but they're spending it in the wrong way, and they don't feel that they get the services that are actually happening. So I think this balance between those three lacks in the report are really important, very, very tricky to get right. So, so capacity building in these places is critical to make this work. Great. Let's get very practical. Here's a question. Um, about something very topical. I mean, we couldn't have an event on this without talking about HS2. HS2 plan to connect three city regions being discussed today between Birmingham and Manchester Lakes were cancelled. What role would fiscal devolution play in these major, major intercity infrastructure schemes in the future? And what would be the priority for these regions to grow their tax base? Um, Anthony, any thoughts? Yeah, sure thing. So I think it sort of begs the question a little bit in saying intercity, right? There's always going to be a major role for national government in delivering those infrastructure projects of national significance right you know think about nuclear power stations think about hs2 those are always going to be driven by the department and, and it should be managed there in partnership with local governments however that's done but you know it, i think it's fine if you know some responsibilities sit at a national level and are deliver delivered by national government but i think it, the flip side of this is that there's loads of intra-city so local urban transport decisions which can't be delivered at present unless the minister gives um their say so and you know, even like you know, silly schemes like such as the old soul cord, right? Like a, like a tiny amount of railway track, um, 
within, uh, within Manchester. It took years to get approval, took years to get through the process, and it still isn't being used properly because um, central government hasn't signed off the additional platforms that are needed at Manchester Piccadilly. All of these decisions, you know, if you ask people in Manchester, these need to happen to improve um, Manchester's connectivity, both urban and, and national. But it's um, the national government is a bottleneck on, on these local t decisions being made. So I think even though national government is always going to have a big role for the national schemes, a kind of a downstream from our fiscal devolution proposals is that cities will have the resources and also the powers to just be able to get on with it and just be able to build the infrastructure that their places need without permission from central government. Great. Let's um, move on to thinking a bit more about the political feasibility of, of fiscal devolution. That's definitely where the majority of, of questions are driving discussion. I think I'll start with a question perhaps for the panel and then I'll, I'll pick up from, from some in the room and, and on Slido. So my question really is, um, you know, there's a really, I think there's a really interesting policy design question, isn't there, in, in fiscal devolution about, um, we talk a lot about the gains for areas. We talk a lot about they're mm -hmm. going to improve growth. They're going to be able to kind of keep more of the, of the, of the pie. Um, but I mean, there's a risk as well, isn't there, that in, in bad times when growth is, is not flourishing, that they're going to have to take some of the hit. And certainly some of our cities workers suggested that, you know, that a, a great deal of the growth strategy isn't really within the control of, lo of local government. I mean, you think about Birmingham and the effect that the IRA um, is now having on its local economy. So how much jeopardy should there be in fiscal devolution? How much, how much or how much um, should central government kind of put a backstop in place? So maybe I will start with you, Bart. Yeah, as I think we all agree, we're clearly at the wrong side of the spectrum here at the moment. It's too centralized, there's too little devolution going to happen. So the, the path that we're going, I think there's just violent agreement amongst everyone that that is where we need to go. But I think you're exactly describing the risk of doing this, and that is that you can devolve uh, fiscally, but you need to at the same time devolve the planning powers and the governance parts of that. And you need to have this multi-level governance system. Uh, and the, the, gov the central government is, has to be a backstop in terms of trying to sort of you know, manage uh, shortfalls that are happening at some point in time. And th these are very difficult to, to get exactly right. So I think, actually, I think generally I would make the point on the reports, uh, we, we could really benefit from looking at some other countries because other countries are struggling with this as well. And, and most countries are not getting this right quite quite at, 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 the, at the right time, They're experimenting with it and trying to figure this out. But I think recently we have seen a really good example in the United States where the Inflation Reduction Act actually has really got government, central governments, uh, federal government in the US to really work with states and with cities in order to implement the, uh, the IRA Act uh, very effectively. So I think trying to find that balance and see where federal or central government can, un, can come in and what is the backstop kind of model has to be part of this discussion, I think, to get it right. Great. Tony, any thoughts on that question? Well, yes, I mean, it sort of builds on what I was sort of saying earlier that, um, I mean, it would be good if authorities at the sub-national level worried about the local tax base. So for Scotland and Wales, where there has been a degree of tax devolution, in both of those nations, an interest is now shown on sustaining the scale of the local tax base. If you don't have any concern of that kind, then as far as I can see, nobody needs to bother about it other than national government, and they don't bother about it very much either, it would appear. So, or think about it very much, given the muddle the tax system is at the national level. So um, I think it, it, you know, the current arrangements infantilise local government and don't make it think 
how do we need to build up not just the economy because they all want to many of them want to do that but the tax base that would then allow us to borrow money against it invest for the future and going back to the high speed 2 question it's not you know the uk is not going to be america america is a terrible parallel for this you're not going to get areas of city we've had a bit of this actually in other cities outside even in london in the past of dereliction not going to get that problem because as I said earlier, national government would still control the distribution of about 90% of the state's public spending and tax and the use of taxes. So, you know, this is even in this report, which is radical by English standards, British standards, it's not very radical by many other countries' standards. Mm. Heather, I'm going to ask you the question, but I'm going to use one of the Slido questions to, to kind of pose it in a slightly different way, which is um, do you think local leaders would embrace fiscal devolution? Yes. I mean, there is. Okay. Well, <laughs> expand. Let's, let's hear. And I think. And well, it goes back to Tony's point about um, the, uh, the the sort of parent-child relationship that uh, local government has uh, with uh, central government. I think. Um, and I will sort of go back to uh, the original question that you asked about um, about the inequality with uh, with uh, less well-off areas. Um, and I think it was Heseltine always used to say that the areas that didn't have that the the tax base, um, and, you know, you. Uh, at that point, you should look at uh, putting in public sector infrastructure, so big teaching hospitals, whether the, you will build um, jobs and growth through the public sector and you support uh, places that can't uh, bring in their own tax base. But I think um, for probably over a decade now, we've watched um, the core cities produce a series of reports saying that, that actually they want, they absolutely want to drive productivity for this country and push more and more money into the treasury. And it, they, they're just not being given the tools. I think um, overall, um, if you're saying, um, well, what happens in a recession? I would suggest that you don't want to start from here, do you? Um, so at the moment, if local government went into um, a, a place of fiscal devolution with the lack of um, financial stability that is available, that is showing across the country, then absolutely they wouldn't have any capacity to be able to deal with that. If you're talking about building this up over the case over the course of um, several years where they have warning that we are going to go through um, economic cycles, that's a completely different matter. And one final thought. I mean, this report does refer to the loss of funding to local government over the last 13, 14 years. Some councils, it's 10 or 15 percent. They're spending 10 or 15 percent less now than they were in 2010. Hard to believe if they depended 100% on their local tax base, they'd have made those cuts themselves Absolutely. at that level. Yep. Or they'd have any economy would have declined that much. So, you know, even though they are 100% protected by this marvellous system of centralisation with the government determining everything, they're now spending 15, 20% less than they were 13 years ago because the government has dictated it. Yep. Yep. But equally, um, amid massively rising pressures mm. of the cost of living crisis, Indeed. inflation yeah. and um, uh, demographics of adult social care and children's social care rising massively. Yeah. Good point. Um, let's kind of flip it and think um, about the other side of the equation which is um, brought up by this question um, 
from anonymous again. Mm -hmm. um, how might the Treasury, or I assume they mean the government, of all political persuasions be persuaded to accept a negotiated and agreed version of this proposal? This is the, the multi-million dollar question, isn't it? Again, I might come, I might come all the way through the panel on this one, given that yeah. um, this, is, this is the crux of the issue. Anthony, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure thing. So I think this is going to really at the heart of the thinking uh, in, in the report, and it's why we've really stressed revenue neutrality, right? This isn't about, um, you know, Treasury committing to, you know, billions of pounds more outlays um, to deliver potential improvements to services. This is really about, um, you know, changing the design of the funding system, as well as the emphasis on growth, right? That, um, you know, it may be desirable, you know, it may be, um, you know, it, it may even be kind of necessary to put more funding into the funding system um, so that local government can meet its obligations. But that's a separate question from, you know, what powers should local government have um, and what powers should the mayors have um, to manage their own local economies and help drive the national economy. So going into these negotiations, you know, w w with the mayors, um, you know, if they're trying to pursue this uh, with Treasury, that emphasis on, you know, we want to be autonomous. We, we don't want to cost Treasury any more money, but also we, we want the powers um, to deliver growth and we will be held accountable for that if we don't. Um, that's really the key thing, I think, um, when talking to Treasury. Yeah, too much of the growth and productivity agenda in the UK is concentrated in Treasury. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things that the Productivity Institute we're doing together with our colleagues at the Centre for Economic Performance at LSE is actually come up with a proposal that really spreads responsibility for growth and productivity across multiple policy domains in central government. Once you do that, it automatically you get more channels to reach out to the regional and the local level as well. It's not just the fiscal channel. It is the many other channels through education system, through transport, through housing, through planning, that are all channels that reach out into the regional level. So I think by actually spreading the growth and productivity gender responsibilities in a much more natural way across multiple departments in central government will automatically lead to the fact that the regional and local governments will begin to embrace the different parts of that agenda and make it much more likely that that free leg uh, stool that you're describing is really going to be implemented. Because as I said before, what I worry about is that we devolve fiscally that we don't devolve in the other areas or the other way around, and then we may actually end up in a worse place than in a better place than where we currently are. I'm going to come to Heather so that she's not last. If that's <laughs> right. Heather. Um, so in terms of the Treasury itself, I'm told that um, local income tax is, that is not as far um, away from their minds as it might have been a few years ago and that it um, the, the expression used um, when I spoke to somebody about it was it's pushing it open door now that was the Treasury though and I don't think that's politicians and I think what we've and I'll go back to a point I've already made um, we've looked at you know council tax is toxic uh, nobody will touch it business rates they didn't manage to do, fair funding review they haven't managed to do. Um, so I think, um, I don't want to be a doom monger on this, uh, but politically these things are incredibly difficult. I would love to see somebody uh, come into uh, the Treasury or indeed uh, DLUC and say, do you know what, I can, we can do this, uh, let's change the face of this country and uh, do proper devolution rather than tinkering at the edges as we have been doing. Tony? Well, we all love the Treasury really, <laughs> but um, you know it has a load of implied theological beliefs or near theological beliefs. So it wants to control public spending to the nearest pound and actually they're quite good at that. 
over time, but not massively interested in the way the money's used or what it achieves, and that's not ideal given how big the state now is in the United Kingdom and how high taxes are. Um, so I think that in a sense that as with all lobbying, the Treasury needs to be convinced that there's something in this that in, is in its best interest. And what would be in its best interest is actually the money would be better used and public services would be somewhat better. And I know it's a cheap point, but it's worth looking at, you know, some of the evidence about how national government operates that's been put in the public domain in recent weeks and months, um, well, actually recent days, uh, just to see how even there are local authorities that don't get all of this right, but the idea that you know, what happened in Thurrock or Woking is systemic, whereas what went on during COVID in national government tells us nothing, is absurd. So, you know, the Treasury, in its own interest, could devolve some power and tax power. It would start to generate thinking about growing the tax base. And actually, the other thing it would do, which we haven't really mentioned so far, is it would make councils even more, and they've been good at this, and combined authorities good at this, think about growing the private sector because underpinning all of this, we tend to think about all of this into redistributing public spending, yep. when the real difference between Bolton, mentioned in the report, and Westminster isn't the amount of public spending per head, it's the amount of private enterprise and private business there. And that, you know, what we're talking about really is trying to drive up productivity and dried up, drive up the likelihood that big, good new businesses will set up in places they traditionally haven't. And it would help that, and that would help the national tax take. That's a really interesting point. Um, I think it's probably time to, to take some questions from people who've made it, made it to the room. <laughs> um, so I'm assuming we have a roving mic somewhere. Um, any questions that people would like to pose to the panels? One here, Cara, please. I'll put this in a... Reasonably Do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, as well? sorry, I'm Julian Ware from Transport for London. Um, so I need to put this question quite neutrally. Um, but we've got two tiers of local government, and generally there's very little fiscal flow between them. Certainly in London, there is more in in Manchester and other places, and there's very little redistribution, in a sense, done between Kensington and Barking under the current systems. But if you put them together and you go for regional distribution, you're creating something quite new, which could be quite difficult to deliver. But does that speak to your question um, earlier about sort of size? Yeah, so, so I think what the, um, what the three places have in common is that they're all characterized by highly unequal places within. And it really goes to, you know, if we look at Greater Manchester, West Midlands, uh, Greater London Authority, that kind of the, the meso level government that we try to focus on. <coughs> My point is that I, I, I worry certainly in the case of Greater Manchester and West Midlands that these are still a bit too small. But I think the key is that these meso level governments are much better to deal with the interests of uh, the underlying levels of the individual boroughs or places that are within those uh, territories. So I think this proposal, that's why I said earlier, I think it will help to actually create more equality within those areas. It will help to really more clearly divide up policy responsibilities between the meso level and the local borough level. 
um, you know, we do a lot of work at the Productivity Institute, which we call, call kind of place-based investment strategies, where we really work at this lower level and say, okay, if you sort of know the broader setting of, say, Greater Manchester, how is Bolton actually going to implement that and make sure that it works in that area? So I can see that these two levels with this kind of proposal, giving more powers both fiscally as well as uh, uh, in terms of economic policy and politically governance, that we will have more opportunity actually to work with these borders within each of those areas. So I think that's a plus of this proposal, that I think it gives us just more scope. Tony, do you have thoughts on that question? Yeah, and there are, there are, it's definitely, there are two ways of equalising between areas and indeed between individuals living in areas. One is national government measures needs precisely, measures resources precisely, then has a huge and elaborate formula and grants that nobody can understand and are rarely any longer updated to redistribute or you could do it within the urban area. And of course, uh, some of that does happen already at a minor level within any of the metropolitan areas we're discussing, particularly transport uh, and other services that are run across the whole area, police and fire in Man Manchester and London. Um, but of course, and there used to be a London rate equalisation scheme in the distant past, which did take taxes from some London boroughs and give it to others. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think thinking about sub-national government entities as ways of redistributing within them is a much more locally sensitive idea than national government trying to do it with a great big formula. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, let's circle back to a question that I think you raised at the beginning, Bart, and there's, someone's referenced it in a, a question on Slido, which is about, um, you know, I thought you put it really nicely. Are we are we going fast in order to go, but but going to end up going going slower um, in the end? Um, so the question is, um, Van Ock's comments highlight the need for devolution to go much further. The focus on a few major cities results in negative outcomes for dozens of others. There's a lot of questions on Slido, I should say, about about towns and about um, what's the offer there. And must we not consider the federalisation of England as a solution to the economic question at hand? Anthony, I can see you nodding your head. Let's, let's hear from you. Yeah, sure thing. So I think kind of one level, right, um, these proposals would result in national economic benefit because they'd help grow the national economy. Because we're talking about such a large share of the UK's economies within these three places that will increase national tax revenues and make it possible to fund national services across the country. So there's an element in that, you know, there's no world in which the UK does better unless these three big cities also do better uh, as well. But I think it's kind of what it, it's sort of, I sense a bit of a tension in this question between um, sort of, oh, like this is, um, this looks really good. Like, why can't we have this outside of the big cities as well? What does fiscal devolution look like um, outside of these three big cities? I think a lot of the discussion we've been having on this panel sort of, you know, there's a bit of gulping about, you know, this is actually quite, quite a big change. It's quite difficult just to deliver it to these three big cities. It is also difficult to deliver it, it much more so outside of the three big cities partly because of the capacity questions that Bart has been mentioning, but also because the structure of local government outside of England is a complete mess, right? It is totally higgledy-piggledy. It is very, very fragmented. And if you did fiscal devolution to that existing local government structure, you would increase inequality without necessarily increasing um, the economic growth incentives that we'd like. So uh, to, to kind of get to the heart of this question, should we be thinking about um, moving towards like a comprehensive reorganization of local government, Redcliffe Maud style, and using that to deliver fiscal devolution. I think we should be considering that, but we shouldn't let the fact that um, that's really hard to do. If that is too hard to do, we should still be considering these proposals as a way to make not just these free cities better off, but also the UK as a whole better off too. 
So to, so to me, the big challenge is we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. That's what's good about this. We want to do the good thing, even yeah. though it's not perfect. We also don't want to rush and get and stuck in the slow lane. And the biggest threat is that this becomes captured by the chopping and churning and short-termism thinking that we've been say, seeing for a, a very long time. So to me, the key question is how can you make sure that this is part of a longer-term strategy that doesn't fall victim to any next government or any next minister coming in and say, well, you know, maybe in the end this wasn't such a good idea, let's just cut it down again. That's the real risk I think that we're facing of detaching this from the long-term strategy that I think we all agree is really needed yeah. here. And how to do this is really hard, yeah. I think. I think the other side of that though is that, you know, if this is the question that kind of people respond to, to devolution to these really big cities, if people are like, hey, we want some of this as well, maybe this kind of first step move is in part of how you unlock that kind of longer term strategy and you help people realize outside the big cities, yeah. actually, you know, um, you know, we, we can do have, have similar big changes in, in our structures and our local finances too. Yeah. Heather, any thoughts on the question? Yeah, so um, I would, you know, I think the report makes it very, very clear that this is, uh, let's start with these three because there's a bit of infrastructure there in the first place and then we can move to, to some of the other areas. I think somebody said earlier um, that uh, we have two tiers of local government. Actually, in some places it's three um, and in some places you could argue it's probably four. Um, so currently we've got, in terms of policy for um, smaller towns, the government has sort of been a bit more um, encouraging on that. But you're looking at very, very small pots of bid funding money that are doing absolutely nothing, you know, tarting up a high street. Actually, if you're looking at um, the uh, sub-regional level and uh, trying to uh, plow money into that, you're talking about building skills, growth, um, and just on Tony's point earlier about um, building the private sector. At the moment, we're in the middle of a technological revolution that will mean that the whole face of work is going to change. We're going to have lots more smaller businesses, I would suggest, um, going forward than we, or we already have, I think, more small businesses than we, than we once did, individuals working in completely different ways. Um, so building skills is going to be an absolutely key element of this in the future. Um, and on the point about reorganisation, I think um, this comes around over and over and over again in local government. I think um, there are arguments for um, reorganisation and there are arguments against. I think whilst we still have two-tier local government, we will have arguments about reorganisation and the current government seems intent on driving out costs from local government and I would argue it possibly looks like they are attempting to drive reorganisation by making some councils unviable. Um, I'm not entirely sure that's the best way to win an argument for reorganisation, but that's where we seem to be. I'll have a little argument with Anonymous and the question, because <laughs> focus on a few major cities results in negative outcomes for dozens of others. This, the implication would be if London succeeded, that Bracknell and Wokingham and Milton Keynes and Brighton and Crawley would all do badly. Well, all the Centre for Cities work I've seen suggests exactly the opposite. Blackpool came into existence because Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds were very successful, dynamic 19th century cities and people would go on holiday there. So I think we need to think, I'm not saying there isn't an argument for thinking in terms of, going back to Bart's original point, wider areas than Greater Manchester or the, Le or the Liverpool city region. 
in order to ensure that people who live in smaller towns or nearby benefit from the growth in those. But the alternative is, Heather said, you know, lots of little pots of cash sprinkled everywhere. Yeah. And I was thinking the latest, what was it, overlooked towns money, where Wrexham got some money. What about all the other towns in North Wales that need massive investment? So, you know, the centralisation that we're all worried about has a further consequence that people in rooms a few, a few within a mile of here trying to work out how to allocate cash to thousands of towns and villages so that they're all getting a fair share. So I think, you know, uh, the agglomeration economics argument powerfully point to concentrating on cities but making sure the growth is spread. Great. Um, let's begin to wrap up. Um, we've heard lots on the case for change. We've heard lots about the pros and cons. We've heard lots about the practical implications of trying to implement change. Um, we'd like to get your views. So let's let's go to a poll. Um, and it's future looking, which is one of the things we like to do here quite a lot. So um, please use Slido to, to vote on the question, um, if the question comes up. So significant fiscal devolution comes with opportunities and risks for policy politicians and policymakers. So where does Britain, where is Britain most likely to be in 2030? So vote A if you think there'll be fiscal devolution everywhere. Vote B if you think there'll be some fiscal devolution in few major cities. C for further policy devolution, but fiscal powers remaining centralised. And D if you're at the very pessimistic end of the spectrum and you think there'll be no further baby steps um, by 2030. Um, let me take let me take soundings from the panel. Heather, what do you think? Where would you plump? Well, do you know what? I, so in my more optimistic days, I'd go for fiscal devolution everywhere, but my more realistic, I think I'll probably, I'm probably going to go for fiscal devolution in a few major cities. I think there's going to be a little bit. Um, I think there's not going to be enough. I'm going to be, still be frustrated, uh, but a little. So heading, heading in the right direction. Yeah. Let's enough. be optimistic. Okay, Tony. I agree. I think because of the, the starting point, the enormous degree of centralisation that, you know, pilots, government's just about convincible to use the old pilot to try things out just to be sure the sky doesn't fall in. And so well, I think this report is very helpful in it. It encourages more of that thinking. And when the sky doesn't fall in, it'll be possible to roll it out further. Bart, where would you go for? I wish it were one, but I think it's probably going to be between two and three. Yeah. And starting on free, the risk of free is what I've been saying. I gave the example of the Netherlands. What happens in some countries is you devolve policy, but you don't devolve fiscal. That can be a really bad place for places to be in uh, because you have a lot of responsibility and you don't have the money. So I better be in two. So that's why I like this report because it gives us at least the likelihood that in some big cities we can actually get this done. Uh, because I'm really worried about the third option, uh, but ultimately, if we do two, we have to work towards one. So it has to be part of a long-term strategy. So I want all first three. Anyway. I'm, glad, I'm glad no one's gone for, gone for four yet. And yeah. where are we going to get to? Yeah, so I think can I complete the consensus. I think I would say we're probably in um, number two. I think all the logic around pilots um, is, is exactly how Treasury and the mayors will think of it. I think there's also an awareness that uh, Buck kind of pointed out number three. Um, we do know from the, from the literature that <clears throat> unfunded mandates are requiring local government to do things without giving them the money to do that is really bad for, yeah, for local terrible. and national growth. Um, but I think with B, with number two, um, I think we will start to get into, sit, into this political debate around, well, the big cities now have it. How do we scale it out um, elsewhere? So I think we'll be 
two, and then I think number one will begin to be on the radar by, by 2030. Let's find out how, how accurate the panel's <laughs> prognosis is. So, okay, well, there you go. I mean, yes, cautious optimism, I think we'd describe this as. And, and well, Bart, Bart got it right. Bart got it right. Only 2% in the, in the ultra pessimistic camp. So that, that's, I think that sort of sets us up for a kind of, you know, a reasonable degree of thinking that, that there's, there's kind of progress to be made and that we're going to get some distance. Um, we should probably draw things to a close. Um, I think I want to give the last word to Anthony because we've obviously focused very much on one leg of your stool, the fiscal devolution one. Uh, do you want to say a little bit more about the other um, issues that are raised in the report? Yeah, sure thing. So thinking about, again, this kind of stool metaphor, you know, we do want to see changes to the powers that the mayors have and also to the nature of governance within these places as well. And partly this is with an eye to thinking about how the this deal is a stepping stone towards devolution out to the rest of England. So in terms of powers, we'd like to see that um, planning reform is done at the mayoral level. So a merger between local plans and local transport plans at the um, mayoral level to deliver spatial planning for the first time in England since the 1950s. Um, we'd also like to see some of the commuter railways um, that are currently, um, you know, exist within in the big cities uh, being transferred over to the mayors for operational control. Each of the combined authorities already has quite developed plans on how to do this. We like some smaller things as well. So we'd like to see um, the, the mayors take on uh, licensing for city centres in, um, in terms of the nighttime trade there. But the other kind of big question here is around governance. So it's about you know, we, I think we've seen some discussion, I think an emerging consensus that Greater Manchester's model, the combined authority model, has worked really well within Greater Manchester. But if you take a more national look and you see how the combined authority model has worked in other parts of the country, it has entered into quite serious difficulties in, um, in delivering kind of strong local economic leadership um, within some urban areas. So we'd recommend that there's a stronger... Um, separation between the mayors and the boroughs than what um, than what currently exists in, in legislative terms, but that's compensated for by the mayors taking on a stronger role in setting a funding settlement uh, for um, uh, for the boroughs across across each city region. And also coming back to this question of geography, you know, I think we even though kind of each of the three city regions is a viable economic geography in its own right, if we're serious about rolling out devolution to the rest of England and Wales, we start to need to be, be need to be having these conversations around is the geography of the city regions uh, as they currently are exactly right to enable devolution uh, across all of England. So bottom line, read the report. Read the report. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much, everybody. Thank you so much for joining today for the questions on Slido. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them. Um, there, there's a, a richness there, so do have a look. Thank you, Heather, Tony, Bart and Anthony. And I should just say that um, for those of you who are interested in hearing more about this topic and indeed all the topics in the Economy 2030 inquiry, we have our final report coming out in a few weeks' time. So please do join us at our conference on the 4th of December in um, Queen Elizabeth um, Centre. So look online and register for that. It would be great to see you there. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest Living Standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.